Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. In 2019, in the July uh, edition of uh, Cretaceous Research, matter of fact, it's volume 99, pages 1 to 13, there was a, a report uh, titled Patterns of Soft Tissue and Cellular Preservation in Relation to Fossil Bone Tissue Structures and Overburden Depth at the Standing Rock Hydrosaur Site. Now, this uh, was a research paper uh, studying the um, remains of dinosaurs, very large deposit of dinosaur fossils that is found um, in the Maastrichtian Hell Creek Formation, which is in South Dakota in the United States. And the researchers were studying these fossils. They were digging up a lot of fossils of uh, different types of um, um, dinosaurs that were buried, uh, sort of like in a mass grave in this area. And the interesting thing was that most of the fossils were what were called the what were called hadrosaurs or duckbilled uh, dinosaurs, and these were uh, examined. There were lots of bones examined, and essentially in most of the bones that they examined, they found soft tissues, um, and they report the studies on 17 unfossilised dinosaur bones from various types of dinosaurs in this graveyard. And they describe the, the quantities of soft tissue within preserve, within these fossil bones, they described as abundant. So there were lots of soft tissues still uh, remaining in the bones of um, at least 10 of the 17 that they examined. In the other five dinosaurs, they, were, um, they said that soft tissue was, was, was frequent. But in, in 10 of the 17 bones that they examined, it was, it was described as abundant. And these uh, samples of soft tissue included blood vessels, some of which were uh, even still pliable upon manipulation. Now, this, this really is really powerful evidence that these um, fossils can't be the millions of years old. Now, this particular bed that they're found in falls into the Cretaceous period, which is dated roughly 70 million years to just over 100 million years ago. And that's why it was published in the Journal of Cretaceous Research. And it's quite interesting when we consider this Cretaceous period of history. If you look in the, or study the geology textbooks, and uh, those that go into this, during that particular period, the geological formations that we study indicate that the entire world was covered by water at that time. And so that's, you know, it's what the, the textbooks point out. And that's when, you know, as I've mentioned in some of the other talks, that's when the, the massive limestone uh, deposits were laid down. 
And so here we we have these animals were buried in a mass grave. So obviously catastrophic conditions to bury these animals. The, the hadrosaurs were quite large dinosaurs. And the fact that they find these particular soft tissues, even to the point of view that you've got blood vessels that are still um, pliable, is you know, it's powerful evidence of that they can't possibly be these millions of years old. They found um, bone cells that were still, um, you know, that hadn't been mineralised, uh, still the soft tissue and collagen-like uh, structures. And uh, they even removed um, sort of bone cells and blood vessels from the hydrosaur backbone. So this was, and even parts of tendons that had been partly fossilised with uh, mineralised, they'd been turned to mineralised, there were still soft tissue cells that hadn't been filled and replaced with, with minerals. Now this is very, very powerful evidence, uh, particularly since that we now know that the soft tissues have been reported in the literature for some time now, um, you know, over 20 years, scientists have been finding and reporting all around the world uh, in different deposits. This um, one in 2019, of course, was a very detailed study of the, of the soft tissue. And the fact that the, in these bones they were uh, abundant um, is really, really powerful evidence for the historical account of Noah's flood. And this occurring, and of course, according to the Bible dating, it was only thousands of years ago. And that fits with this sort of preservation that we're uh, finding, that scientists are finding in the uh, dinosaur uh, fossils there that were buried at a catastrophic condition, uh, under catastrophic conditions, that again, scientists recognised was a worldwide catastrophe that occurred at that time. And of course, as I've mentioned before, there are a number of you know, cre uh, extinction events that are recorded in the fossil record, and scientists conventionally date these global extinction events by water as millions of years apart. But also, as I've pointed out previously, when we look at these layers, such as they're preserved in the Grand Canyon, we see these these fossil these beds that have been laid down that represent these extinction event periods, and they're laying on top of one another without signs of erosion in between or significant erosion in between, and also without, um, in many cases, conformably, you know, sitting sitting on top without without erosion, and they're and they're virtually some of the layers are virtually parallel, you know we. Um, showing again all this evidence that these events weren't separated by hundreds of millions of years or even tens of millions of years. They had to be one big concurrent event. So when we look at the, you know, the science there, it, it's powerful evidence for the historical accuracy of the, uh, the Bible. The Bible is a historical account. And recently I was... Reading just again um, Herbert Butterfield's uh, accounts of uh, history in his his book um, called Christianity and History, and one of the big points that he makes out is that Christianity 
is a historical faith. The faith of Christianity is based on history. It's based on actual events that happened. And the other thing that, um, and and of course Noah's flood is is part of that part of that history that uh, comes out. And he one of the things that he writes is, it is better worldly wisdom even when we're only looking for a pictorial representation, and he's talking about history here, to think of history as though an intelligence were moving over the story, taking its bearings afresh after everything men do in making its decision as it goes along. Decisions sometimes unpredictable and carrying our purposes further than we wanted them to go. So that's a quote from uh, Butterfield, um, uh, in his book, page uh, 143, I've taken that from. And, of course, he was uh, professor of history at the University of Cambridge uh, back in the 1950s. And the whole thesis of his book is that Christianity is a historical religion and there is overwhelming evidence down through history that God has been there in control. Now, and has directed the paths of of history. So we see the flood came about because people had become so evil. God had to do something about it. There was one sort of family, it would seem, that was still uh, clinging on to the knowledge of God and preserving God, and that was Noah's family. And I guess they were under threat of being you know, uh, wiped out and obliterated if there was massive evil everywhere. And this is why... God had to do something. And, of course, Noah preached. God obviously protected him while he was preaching there to the people. But the people ignored him and didn't go into the ark. They didn't heed that warning message. And it's interesting we have the the same warning message be, uh, being given today. And, of course, the um, you know many churches, um, faith... Uh, leaders and strong Christians back in the early 1800s began talking about the importance of Jesus coming again, that God would visit the world again and that Jesus was God incarnate in a human form to teach us and that there would be a judgment coming, just like in the days of Noah. And one of the things that has impressed me is, um, as I'm reading this book, uh, by John uh, Lennox, Dr. John Lennox, who is Professor of Mathematics at um, the University of Oxford, and his uh, book Against the Flow, The Inspiration of Daniel in an Age of Relativism. And again, I find it really fascinating that here John Lennox is pointing out the same things, and he's actually referring quite a bit to Uh, Butterfield's book, and I'll just um, look up when Butterfield wrote his uh, book. So Butterfield uh, first published his book in 1949, and um, the version I have is a 1957 version. So if we look at back in the 1950s, nearly 70 years later, here we find Professor of Mathematics is referring to uh, Butterfield's work and pointing out that really... 
we have this overwhelming evidence now as we look back through history that God is in control. And it reminded me of something that Sir Fred Hoyle, a famous astronomer, said too when he was talking about the universe. He pointed out when we look at the structures out there in the universe and the the nature of the chemical structure of atoms that make up the components of the universe and how finely tuned, for example, the structure of the carbon atom is that, that is responsible for the carbon chains that make up the polymers, that make up the organic components, the organic um, compounds that when they're put together make living systems how fine-tuned that is and the, just the structure of the universe, how the different forces that control things and the what we call the physical constants that uh, confine or restrain the, the, different con- the different forces and energy fields that we uh, experience and that we've observed. So it's, it's almost as if a... A superintelligence has tinkered with the system and just fine-tuned everything. And so here we have this astronomer, well, you know, a famous, highly esteemed professor of astronomy pointing out that here we have this evidence that the universe is so finely tuned. Here we have, um, you know, a great historian uh, back in, you know, the 40s and 50s pointing out that history itself is, is so finely tuned. And to see again one of the you know, world's top mathematicians again pointing out that we have this evidence and history is actually pointing at this time in our world to the evidence that God is real, he's an intervening God and he has intervened in history down through time. And now, of course, we have this this evidence from science, growing evidence all the time that is confirming the uh, the Bible account. I was uh, reading uh, a section in the the book by uh, Professor Lennox just the other night, and what, what he talks about in in his book is he says, on one occasion, after giving a lecture on the relationship of science to theology, which be related to faith, in a major scientific institution in England, a physicist asked me, how could I possibly be a mathematical scientist in the 21st century and hold to the central faith, central belief of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ was simultaneously human and God? Now, this is a really, really important uh, question because, you know, a lot of people think, well, Jesus was just a good man and uh, sure, he had a lot of good teachings. And then, of course, we have other schools of thought that, um, you know, was Jesus really a real person at all? And there's all, all these different doubts. But, of course, now we have the overwhelming evidence that Jesus was certainly a real person and the miracles that he did, there's so much evidence for that in the Gospels that were written records by witnesses that were written at the time and so forth. So we have this powerful evidence now as it's often been pointed pointed out, you know, we've got more evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ really than we have of, you know, a lot of the other historical figures, even like Julius Caesar and so forth. But anyway... Getting back to this, this uh, to this whole concept that Jesus Christ was both human and God. This is a 
fundamental tenet. And so here we have at a top university in the UK, a professor of mathematics who is a Christian being challenged by another scientist, a physicist, and saying, look, how can you as a scientist in this present time hold to this belief that Jesus Christ was simultaneously human and God? And Lennox replies by saying, I replied that I would be delighted to face his question if he could answer me a much easier scientific question first. And he agreed. And so the question that uh, John Lennox asked him was, what is consciousness? And the physicist hesitated for a while and said, well, you know, I don't know. And um, so Lennox said to him, well, okay, never mind. Let's think of something easier. What is energy? And I guess all of us, you know, we think energy. We take energy for granted, don't we? We, uh, Matter of fact, one of the energy providers that I was with for our electricity bill was called Energy Australia, right? And 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 we think of energy, you know, there's a lot of talk today about green energy and using solar power and wind energy as opposed to using, you know, coal-fired power stations or, you know, nuclear uh, reactions to provide energy. So what is energy? And we think, oh, well, my energy consumption, that's the amount of electricity I use or it's the amount of gas that I use to heat my stove or, you know, we, th- we, th- we think of energy as this... Um, well, technically it's defined as a capacity to do um, work, I suppose. Um, so en- energy is this, and we talk about kinetic energy. When something is moving, it has kinetic energy. Or if, if we compress a spring, it's pushing back and it can move something. So we could say that's potential energy. So here we have, and of course this is right in the realm of physics. So here we have this mathematician, as a physicist, And he said, well, okay, well, what is energy? And the physicist replied and he said, well, we can measure it and we can write down equations governing its conservation. And uh, Lennox replied and he said, yeah, I know that, but my question was, what is it? And the physicist replied, well, actually, we don't know what it is. And I think this emphasises a very, very common uh, misunderstanding that is held by many people that scientists really understand the basic core of our existence. And when we boil it down, really, we scientists don't. You know, in other words, we let, let's take gravity, for example, right? So our Earth is spinning pretty fast. And if you spin an object, there's a centripetal force or there's a, a force that... Um, tends to throw something out. Okay, so if you, you know, if you have a, um, uh, you know, a bottle of water and you hold the open end and you fling it around, then the water will fly out of that bottle. And so the same thing as we're flying around. What? Why don't we fly off the surface of the Earth? Get thrown off by this centrifugal force? And of course, what happens is we're held on the Earth. We're pulled in by this gravitational force. It's gravitational field. And because there is a gravitational field, and that field is a force field that pulls everything towards it. And just try that. We jump up where you are, if you can, if it's safe to do so. <laughs> They're embarrassing. And there's something that pulls you back down straight away. 
what is that force? It's a force field. But but what is it? Why does it work? Why why is it there? And I think as as we get into the areas of science and he we think deeply, we realise that there's so many things that we don't understand, but they're there and they fit and they're just balanced perfectly and everything just works perfectly. So there was a, a famous physicist called Feynman, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N. And, of course, Feynman was quoted as saying, no one knows what energy is. And Lennox points out, this brings me to the point, I'd be writing thinking that, and he's, he's challenging this other physicist, he said, you want to dismiss me and my belief in God uh, because I can't explain fully how it can be that Jesus, a human that came as human form, can have human form and be God at the same time. And Lennox goes on to say, well, uh, by the same token, would you be happy if I now dismiss you and all your knowledge of physics because you cannot explain to me the nature of energy? After all, energy is surely by definition a much less complex than the God who created it. And so here Lennox is pointing out that because we can't explain how Jesus can be God at the same time and how God the Father and Jesus the Son can be one and so forth, because there's these things, we can't you know, explain them. It doesn't mean that we can dismiss them, just like we don't dismiss physics because we can't explain what energy is. But he goes on to explain that there's, you know, there's other examples. For example, we know that light, that uh, you know, normal light from a torch or sunlight, is can be represented both as a wave and as particles. It can be represented as little particles of energy that we call photons. It can be represented as a wave, as a continuous. Uh, sort of a stream of light energy in a wave. And it seems to have both properties. Sometimes it behaves like a particle. Sometimes we can send it through little slots and get interesting behaviour in it. Uh, and other t- and times it um, can behave like, a, as I said, a wave or by, by particles. I think it's, uh, it's quite interesting that he draws to the point that we have this evidence for the existence of God the, because, you know, let's face it, scientists can't explain the origin of the planets. They can't explain the origin of the solar system. Sure, we've got theories like the Big Bang Theory and this sort of thing, but they don't actually work. They don't. When we, you know, set out to look at, okay, the Big Bang Theory would predict this, we go out to look for it. It doesn't predict it. It doesn't work. Matter of fact, just just recently, I was um, reading an article on the problems of the Earth's inner core. That um, the Earth's inner core shouldn't exist. So the Earth at the present time, from you know seismic studies of um, uh, that of uh, sort of earthquakes and this sort of thing, scientists understand the Earth has a solid nickel iron core, and then there's a liquid outer core. And then, of course, there's the uh, the outer outer layers, and it was interesting. Uh, an article that was published in uh, Earth and Planetary Science Letters uh, just in 2018 uh, 
Earth and Planetary Science Letters, number um, 487, pages uh, 9 to 20. And it's, um, it's called The Earth's Inner Core Nucleation Paradox. That's the title of the article. And one of the issues is, you see, that if the iron-nickel core in the Earth is solid, how could it have solidified if the Earth started off as a ball of liquid, which the, you know, all the standard theories uh, point to? Because for that to set as a solid, then you have to... Um, have some sort of nucleation and what we call or a seed crystal something some seed crystal would have to cause that to happen for the um, nickel and iron to actually crystallize and go solid otherwise you'd have to drop the temperature so far below their melting point in order to uh, cause them to crystallise, that there's no time for that to happen in terms of the age of the Earth. It wouldn't have cooled down, you know, that much. Uh, it'd take you know tens of billions of years for it to cool down uh, that much, according to their calculations based on the initial temperatures and so forth. So, everywhere we look, we've got problems with the standard scientific explanation of things, but. If we look at God being in control, as the Bible talks about, and the Bible really is that account of the history of the God with man, we find that everything fits and works. And points and Lennox goes on to point out that if we believe that God is in control, this gives us tremendous hope and understanding. We have this powerful evidence through history that God is um, in control, as um, Butterfield uh, points out. And um, one of the things that um, Lennox points out too is in the book of Daniel, which has the, uh, the amazing prophecies where God um, revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the future of the world. The Nebuchadnezzar built the hanging gardens of Babylon, and, but he couldn't remember his dream. And then, of course, God revealed it to Daniel in, uh, as an answer to prayer that Daniel prayed, and he was able to tell the king what he dreamed. This is you know, really powerful evidence when we see that the history was fulfilled, just as it's uh, Daniel uh, laid out and just as it was written down 600 years before Christ. The history up until even the present time with Europe is there. And I would encourage all readers of this program that haven't read the book of uh, Daniel in the Bible, get a Bible and read it in Daniel chapter 2, that amazing prophecy there of the history of the world that takes us right up to the present time of a divided Europe and just to the time before God does return. And if everything else has been fulfilled, in that prophecy up to that time. Surely the prophecy that God is going to return uh, to earth is going to be fulfilled. And the question is, are we ready? Have we accepted God's amazing gift of free salvation uh, by choosing God and turning away from our sin and choosing Jesus as our Saviour? You've been listening to Faith and Science and remember, you can re-listen to these and other previous programs by 
Googling 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the listen button. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.